Come on, put your hands together. We came to celebrate the name of the Lord. That powerful name. The name that's able to protect us. The name that's able to lift us and shield us from our enemies. Anybody want to celebrate that awesome name with me? The writer said, the Lord is my strength. He is my fortress. He's my deliverer. He's my God. And he is my rock. So let's lift our voices together and shout unto the name of the Lord. Good morning, Strong Tower family and friends. Welcome to our 1030 a.m. Sunday morning service. In just a few moments, our very own pastor, Dr. Chris Williamson, will be bringing a timely word. If you have prayer requests or would like to give online, be sure to log on to our website or app at www.strongtowerbiblechurch.com. And now, without further ado, here is our pastor, Dr. Chris Williamson. Good morning, Strong Tower Bible Church. Making disciples who make a difference. That's who we are. That's what we strive to be. Disciples of Jesus who can make a difference for Jesus. And as is our custom, I'd like to open up with a word of scripture from Psalm 73 verses 16 and 17. When I thought how to understand this, speaking of the wickedness and the violence and the oppression in the land, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood therein. Who's therein? The wicked. So the songwriter was saying, I'm having a hard time right now because I'm seeing a whole lot of wickedness in the land per perpetrated by the wicked. I'm seeing violence. I'm seeing oppression. It's too much for me. Has anybody besides me felt like these days has just been a little bit too much to handle? Well, it might be too much for us, but it's not too much for God. But I like what the psalm writer did. The psalm writer says, but when I went into the sanctuary of God, then I gained some understanding. Well, as we worship today, I pray that you will gain understanding that will ease your soul and give you comfort and strength. I pray that today you'll get some understanding from the message that I'm going to preach today. But the songwriter says, I went into the sanctuary and then I got understanding. Now don't throw a shoe at me because we can't come into the sanctuary right now. We all know that. We're back to phase two. We're quarantining all over again. We can't come in here. So pastor, how can I get understanding if I can't come inside the sanctuary? Well, here's the deal. The Jews at times in their history would be uh, uh, removed away from the temple of God and they couldn't get to the house of God. So what they would do is they would build small houses of God wherever they were called synagogues. And in those synagogues, they would meet with God since they couldn't meet with him in the temple. Can I let somebody know something right now? Our God is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere all the time. And you don't have to be with him here to be with him. You can be with him where you are in your home, which is like a synagogue, which is like a sanctuary. So may the Lord meet you mightily today. Matter of fact, I hear a song in my spirit. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary pure and holy, tried and true. And with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. 
So you may not be able to come to church, but you are the church having church. So let's get ready right now to worship God in these uncertain, dark times. God is still the light. He's still good and he's still worthy of all of our praise. Come on, somebody. Strong Tower Bible Church, at this time, I would like to preach a message entitled, Trust Me, Institutional Racism is Real. God is saying to us that we need to trust him. And as we get into the scriptures today, we will see that institutional racism is real. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for being with us being in us, being for us, being above us, being behind us, and being in front of us. We also know, Lord, that you are the foundation on which our lives and the church rests. You are the rock who will not roll. You are the one who is stable and sure and good and powerful and mighty God, you can be trusted. So as we are continuing to go through this series in the midst of these challenging times, may we trust in you with all of our heart and not lean on our own understanding. In this sermon, Lord, I acknowledge you in all of my ways and I pray that you will make my path straight and the paths of those who are listening straight because we are listening to you, we are leaning on you, we are trusting you, we are depending on you, and we know, Lord, you are coming to save the day. We bless you, we honor you, for we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The Bible reads in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, from the New International Version of the Scriptures, from Issachar, which happens to be one of the 12 tribes of Israel, from Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. So as David was contemplating his troops and as they were being broken down according to tribe, it was said of the tribe of Issachar, that the leaders of that tribe not only understood the times in which they were living in, but because of that understanding, they now knew what to do. And as we consider the times in which we're living in today, if we are able to understand the times, we will have some idea on what we are supposed to do. But if we don't understand the times that we're living in, we will not know what to do. We will end up doing nothing and time. The times will continue to perpetuate themselves. But I don't believe that is what God has called his church to be about. We are called to be change agents in these times. We are not to be like ostriches who put our heads in the ground, hoping that danger will not see us because we do not see it. Instead, we are lions for the Lord, lionesses, if you will, heroes and sheroes operating under the ultimate hero, Jesus Christ. And so God has called his people to understand the times and know what to do. But sadly, we live in a time where top ranking government officials 
of this current administration do not believe that institutional racism actually exists. To quote Acting Homeland Security Chief Chad Wolf, I do not think we have a systemic racism problem with law enforcement officers across the country. So there, the Homeland Security officer does not believe that we have a systemic racism problem with law enforcement. Larry Kudlow, the president's top economic advisor said, I don't believe there is systemic racism in the United States. I'm not going into a long riff on it. Dr. Ben Carson, the only black person in the president's cabinet said, real systemic racism happened while I was growing up. But that kind of thing is uncommon now. And then last month, Attorney General William Barr said, I think there's racism in the United States still, but I don't think the law enforcement system is systemically racist. You see, we live in a day and age today where people are finally saying that racism exists, but usually they only mean that in a person's heart. Um, but we seem to have racism without racists today because no one is a racist apparently. And we also seem to have racism that does not infect and affect systems, structures, and institutions. It's just uh, believed that racism is something that can be overcome by doing good or hugging it away. But no, no, no. Racism is a spiritual force, a demonic force that leads to sin problems that produce skin problems and that also produce systemic problems. And so God is calling us, the church, to deal with this spiritual entity that manifests in natural and real ways in our society. We can't be so heavenly minded that we are not earthly relevant and impactful. But that's why we are getting into the word today that the word of God might get into us. You see, the data proves that systemic racism is so real in America that Merriam-Webster is going to change its definition of racism in their dictionary to include systemic racism. You see, racism is not only prejudicial and personal, but racism is also institutional and structural. And beyond the dictionary, Scripture teaches us that systemic racism is real. When the children of Israel were coming out of captivity, out of bondage, out of slavery to the Egyptians after 400 years, Moses and Aaron went and confronted Pharaoh face to face and they said to him, let my people go. And Pharaoh would not let God's people go without God exhibiting a stronger hand than the hand of politics that was exhibited by Pharaoh. And so if we were to take the time to go into that story, we would see how there was a systemic oppressing of the people of God. 
and how they were mistreated by their taskmasters and how the boys, the baby boys, Pharaoh wanted those boys killed and, and dropped into the Nile. So there are many instances in the book of Exodus that tell us of the systemic uh, mistreatment of the Jews, which was solely based on race. And, and maybe I'll preach that sermon another time. But if we were to go into the book of Esther, we would also see uh, institutional injustice, even systemic racism, because the Persians, um, mainly Haman, who was an Agadite, a Persian, uh, wanted to kill all of the Jews because of a personal beef that he had with Mordecai. Since Mordecai the Jew would not bow down to him, Haman used his political power or rather misused his political power in order to get an edict signed by the king saying that on a particular date, the Persians would go forth and kill all of the Jews. You see, that's why we can't just stay in the personal realm of racism or prejudice, because racism literally is one's personal feelings combined with power. And in this case, Haman had the power of the government behind him in order to help him carry out the ill will that he had towards Mordecai, the Jew. So this was a racist thing. He tried to kill him and he tried to use government to do it. And he almost got away with it. But a woman named Esther stood up and she used her position in order to petition for the lives of her people. And as a result, another law was put on the books, giving the Jews the authority from the king to defend themselves against the original edict that he had signed unknowingly. And so we see institutional uh, racism exists in the world of the Bible. You see, racism is not just an individual evil that must be addressed and overcome. Racism is also an institutional evil that must be addressed and overcome. Every institution in America has been affected by racism. From the inception of this country, every institution in America has been affected and infected by racism, not only then, but also now to this day. So, so whether we're talking about the institution of government and politics, racism, military, racism, business and employment, racism, banking and finance, racism, health care, education, housing and real estate, religion, the family, media and communications, arts and entertainment, the judicial system and the criminal justice system, racism has affected and infected all of these institutions in these ununited states of America. And we know that part of getting healed is calling out what the problem is. But we also live in a day and time where people like me get criticized for calling out racism, whether it be in hearts or in institutions, more so than people condemn those who are uh, committing the atrocities, the racist atrocities. But still, we're going to call it out because God has not called your pastor to be a puppet. He has called me to operate in the spirit of a prophet 
as well as a pastor and to speak the truth and to love people well with the truth. Even if I am misunderstood, even if I'm put down and called a race baiter or a liberal or a Marxist, whatever. I just hope you don't call me late for dinner, but I'm going to keep on preaching what thus saith the Lord. Because the longer we deny that institutional racism exists, the longer we will hurt ourselves in the process. So the, the longer we deny it and act like it isn't real or that it has never existed, the longer we're going to hurt ourselves. And to those who say it used to be in institutions, but it's not here now. I wonder when did it change? When did it go away? How did it go away? Now, I know that there has been legislation along the way to change various things about the institutions in America. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we have arrived. That doesn't mean that those th those germs, those remnants are still not there and still need uh, medical attention, if you will, to see them extracted from the body politic of America. But the longer we let it go, the more it's going to hurt us. You see, when I was growing up in uh, elementary school, I went to Edgewood Elementary School and they had a big uh, uh, concrete lot in the back asphalt lot. And we would play baseball uh, during the school day, uh, during recess. And when I would get up to bat, you know, I would try to be like Hank Aaron. I would try to be like, you know, some of the big baseball stars back in the day. But I had a problem when I would go to the bat. Ah, I batted cross-handed. Now, for those of you who may not know what that means, the proper way for someone like me to bat would be like this, to have your hands like this. But when I was a kid, I batted like this and I would swing the bat and I would do that. And I had some success doing that. But I had a friend come and tell me, he said, hey, man, you're doing it the wrong way. Your hands are not correct. They're not supposed to be like this. They're supposed to be like this if you're a right handed batter. And he said, if you keep doing it the wrong way, you might sprain your wrists. So I listened to my friend and I put my right hand over top of my left hand. And, and it was awkward at first because I had been doing the wrong thing for so long. I had gotten comfortable doing it the wrong way. But then when I got right information, come on, help me, Holy Ghost. When I got right information, I moved my hand into the right position so that my swing could be more fluid and more powerful. I'm just stopping by here today to say that I want to help America with its swing. And I want to help the church with its swing. Because just because you've been doing it this way for all these years doesn't mean you've been doing it the right way. And history proves that America has been cross uh, uh, hitting for, 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 for years now. I, I, we've been doing it the wrong way, but it's never too late while there's breath in our lungs to learn from our mistakes and do things the right way. You see, I will prove how our legal system has been more criminal than it has been just, especially in its treatment of descendants from Africa who now reside in America. I'm going to show you that it's not justice, but it seems to be just us. And so we're going to call these things out 
so that we can learn from them and correct them. You see, it was Charlie Dates, pastor of Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago, who said the black preacher in America must now be, as we always have been, a trusted historian and theologian. We have a burden to exegete America at the same time that we exegete the Bible. So today I'm going to do my best to exegete the scriptures, of course, but also to exegete history. But before I go into history, you know, I got to go into the scriptures so that we can see how institutional racism works. Now, the Bible, once again, shows us that it exists. If we just look at the two examples of the Israelites trying to get freed from Pharaoh and uh, the Jews under Esther and Mordecai uh, seeking to survive the edict that Haman put forth. So it's real. It happened then. It happens now. There's nothing new under the sun. But I want us to look at uh, uh, um, certain elements that exist when an institution chooses to misuse its power against a certain segment of its people. And I want you to listen as I read the Bible, as I read the Bible, I hope you still believe that the Bible is the word of God. All of it is inspired. All of it has instruction for us. And as I read this portion of scripture, I want you to listen for these words or these elements of institutional injustice or systemic racism. Listen for invisible. Listen for oppressive. Listen for violent. Listen for unjust. Listen for unrighteous. Listen for selective, normalized, organized, lucrative, and political. All of these elements are found in just two verses in the Bible that speak to systemic injustice. And I want you to read with me from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter five, verses eight and nine. King Solomon wrote, if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter for high official watches over high official and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. Now, you may just read over that and not see institutional injustice. But as your pastor, I'm going to help you see what Solomon was writing about in the book of Ecclesiastes. The first thing he says in verse eight, he says, if you see the oppression of the poor. And that word if is a huge word because not everyone sees systemic oppression. Uh, and usually the ones who don't see it are the ones who benefit from the oppression, making them the actual or historical oppressors. They are beneficiaries of a tilted and unjust system. So they don't see how they benefit from the system. Uh, because that's what he says here. He says, if you see, which means that the system, according to many um, um, sociologists, uh, the, the, the unjust system is invisible 
to some. And, and I wonder, is it invisible that you can't see it? Or is it invisible because you don't want to see it? And so your privilege allows you to change the channel because you don't want to see it. I remember um, growing up and I would uh, watch television in my home and there would be commercials that would come on. And one of the commercials uh, would have Sally Struthers and she used to be in All in the Family back in the day. And, and, and after she finished acting, she did humanitarian work uh, with the poor in African nations like Ethiopia. And she would get on television with children who were hungry, children who were unclothed, children who needed medical attention. And she would try to get money funds in order to help turn the situation around in these places. And she would get on there and they would show children with bloated stomachs and flies on their face. And when I would see that, it would convict me so as a young boy that, man, I didn't want to see that because it would make me feel bad. Or if I look at it long enough, it may make me move into action and, and, and get my parents to send money to do something. But but because I didn't want to feel bad and because I really didn't want to do anything, I used my privilege to turn the station. And so those people, my ancestors in that particular context became invisible to me because I didn't want to see the oppression that was going on there. And so we see here from the text that if you see the oppression of the poor, so there's the word oppression. And we learned last week that that speaks of unjust pressure on a particular people group from the outside, affecting them internally on the inside. And this oppression is not only personal, but as we'll see, it is in the midst of institutions, a misuse of power. So we see uh, uh, invisible, we see oppressive, and then we see a particular demographic here, the poor the underserved, the marginalized, the people with less power. And so it's interesting how the poor who really have nothing materially are usually the objects and, and, and the ones who, who are targeted by the people who quote unquote have everything. They exploit the poor. And if you have time, go over to James chapter five and read the first verses of James chapter five as that New Testament writer uh, uh, continues to confront the sins of the rich and how the rich exploit the poor. So it's not just an Old Testament thing, but it's also a New Testament thing. And then he said in verse eight, there's the violent perversion of justice and righteousness. So there's the word violent or violence that uh, the oppressor has power behind him in order to physically hurt and even kill those who are being oppressed to make them get in line. And they will use violence to do that. But not only that, from the scripture, you see a perversion of justice. What is justice? Justice is simply doing the right thing all of the time for all of the people. That's justice, doing the right thing all of the time for all of the people. But if you pervert justice, that means you are promoting injustice. What is injustice? Doing the wrong thing most of the time against certain people. That's injustice, doing the wrong thing most of the time against certain people. And in this context, it was the poor who were experiencing injustice. 
And then it says here that there's a perversion of justice and righteousness. Oh, I wish I had the time to explain this to you because justice and righteousness come from the same Hebrew root word. Same thing in the New Testament. It's the same root word that produces justice and righteousness, because when one is just, he or she is righteous. When one is righteous, he or she is just or justified. And I have learned that Christians love to talk about the noun of being just, the noun of being righteous before God. And that's a beautiful thing. That is our position in Christ. But the Bible just doesn't talk about righteousness and justice in the form of nouns. But the Bible also talks about these two words in the form of adverbs and verbs that we as Christians are to do justice or to do justly. We are to do what is right or what is righteous. And so if we are believers, we not only thank God for the position of being made right with him and justified with him, but we are also motivated by the same spirit of God to do righteousness and justice in the name of Jesus. So away with people who say that Christians should not be involved in social justice. The gospel is powerful because it goes out into the world, into society where social injustice occurs. And only God and his gospel are the solutions to those situations in society then and now. Jesus didn't just stay up in the temple preaching. He went out to the community reaching and he reached with truth and he set the captives and those who were oppressed free. And that's what we are supposed to do. Any other uh, a brand of Christianity that comes along to say that all we're to be concerned with is being right with God, but it not showing up in how we love our neighbor is not a true witness of the gospel. Oh, my. I got to keep going. I have a long way to go and I got to keep moving, y'all. But also in verse eight, we see that there is a province that is being affected by the injustice and what is unrighteous, a province or a segment in society, a neighborhood, a community, they're being affected. And then he says, do not marvel because this thing has become normalized. Don't marvel if you see it, you know, marvel if you see it and don't do anything. We'll come to that in a moment. But it has become so normalized and embedded into the culture that the dominant group accepts it as just the way that it is. But the oppressed not only see it, but they don't accept it and they go about seeking to change it. And then he goes on to say, for high officials, watch over high official and higher officials over them. So now you see how organized this thing is. It's not flippant. It's not laissez-faire. It's not casual. It is specific where people have authority and chains of authority as pertains to how the oppressed are treated or mistreated in their various provinces. So there's order, there's structure. People are accountable to one another against the oppressed. But lastly, he says in verse nine, moreover, the profit of the land, profit, profit, money, money, money. The love of money is the root to all kinds of evil, including slavery and segregation. 
money, the, the profit from the land, exploiting the poor to take their few dollars away from them. And then he says, even the king is served from the field. Now it's political. The king, the president benefits from the injustice. Oh, a little bit later, I may get into the so-called war on drugs, you know, getting tough on crime, which are usually buzzwords against the province of the black community. And people always want to come against uh, uh, the, the, the drug user, the drug dealer, and rightfully so. But how often do we really think of how did those drugs get brought into the black community to begin with? Who are the higher officials really making the money from uh, selling illegal drugs in the black community? Somebody's benefiting off of what's going on. It was Martin Luther King who said, where there is poverty, crimes will be committed. Where there is darkness, crimes will be committed. And he who commits the crime in the darkness is not the lone guilty one. But he who creates the darkness is just as guilty as the one who commits the crime. And so what we do in our culture is that we vilify and we demonize the, the criminal who commits the crime. But we do not go after, we do not expose, we do not see the criminal who has set up the system or the ungodly web that keeps many people bound and controlled. I believe if we're to do justice, we should not only minister to and serve the one where society has criminalized, but for some people in other communities, uh, they, they see drug addiction as a medical situation, but for others it's a criminal situation. We must, as the church, step in and call out both sides, but we must also pull the curtain back to see the one who's pulling the strings. You remember in The Wizard of Oz when uh, Dorothy and uh, Tin Man and the Lion and the Scarecrow and Toto, can't forget Toto, they came before The Wizard of Oz and all this stuff was going on with, you know, the image and the smoke and the fire and the loud voice, and they were afraid, but it was Toto who went and pulled the curtains back so that everybody could see the man behind the uh, uh, image and the man behind the institution that was threatening them. He was just a regular man. And oh, 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 we've got to pull the curtains back to see these billionaires, to, to see these moguls who are making money off of the back of the poor in the midst of America's institutions. Oh, y'all, I didn't even mean to chase that rabbit. I got to get on my high horse and get going. But we see these things in Scripture. So, so, so that's the biblical piece, all right? Now let me jump with the time I have remaining to talk about the historical piece, all right? The historical piece. I want us to see the systemic connection between why whip marks on black slaves then have led to bullet holes in black men now, okay? Because the things we see now come from somewhere. I want us to see the systemic connection between why prison stripes on black men then have led to orange jumpsuits on black men now. I want us to see the systemic connection between why white men under white sheets then 
have led to black bodies being under white sheets now. I want us to see the systemic connection between how the slave patrols then have led to police brutality now. I want us to see the systemic connection between how the black codes then have led to mass incarceration of black bodies now. There's nothing new under the sun. So these systemic uh, uh, ways of operating in an oppressive fashion occurred not only in Bible days, but also in the early days of America and in our current current climate today, because I'm hoping that we will see the connection, because if we see the connection, we can change the direction. You know, I had to throw a little rhyme in there for you. If we can see the historical connection we can then change the direction. But if we don't see the connection, if we deny that there is a connection or even deny history, then the direction will stay in the same path. But I believe God's called his people again to be change agents in his name, doing deeds of righteousness and, and speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves, not because they don't have a voice, it's that their voice is not allowed at the table. And so until they get to the table, we will speak at whatever tables we find ourselves in. I will use this platform to speak the truth so that God will be glorified and the devil horrified. Amen. Come on. Come on. So let me talk to you real quick. Let me talk. To, I'm going to hit you with two things and then I'm going to let you go. I'm going to hit you with the slave codes. Excuse me. The slave patrols. And secondly, the black code. I'm going to hit you with the slave patrols and the black codes, all right? And then we'll, we'll, we'll let it go. But I hope this ignites your passion to want to read history. I hope that it ignites your passion to read the Bible, um, even from the bottom up. Because as I said last week, it was uh, uh, oppressed people that God used through the moving agent and work of the Holy Spirit to say prophetic things and to write and record the prophetic words of God. And so when these men and women who were in slavery, uh, uh, these men and women who were shepherds and shepherdesses, when they combined and, and these men wrote the word, they were writing from a place of being oppressed. And so therefore, and they wrote about the oppressed savior who came to save all of us from our oppression. And so I believe the Bible is best read, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. So we must honor the voices of the poor, the marginalized, the same people God used to write scripture. My, my, my. And so let's talk about the slave patrols. The slave patrols were some of the first forms of policing to develop in the South. The responsibility of the slave patrols was to oversee the movements, whereabouts and behaviors of enslaved Africans. They weren't African-Americans because they weren't recognized as Americans. They were barely recognized as people because the three fifths clause said that my ancestors were not fully human. And that is one of the things that allowed the consciences of the slave master to be at ease because they were seen. Africans were seen as less than human, but somehow they became human when it came time to mate cross mate and anyway 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 the slave patrols chased down 
apprehended and returned runaway slaves to their owners. Did you hear that? They chased down, apprehended and returned runaway slaves to their owners. They were patrolling. They were overseers. The slave patrols provided a form of organized terror to deter slave revolts. And they also helped to discipline slaves at the request of the slave masters. The slave patrols enforced curfews, meaning that slaves had to be in uh, on the plantation. I don't even call them in their homes, but in their shanties at a certain time. The slave patrols checked for proper paperwork when slaves were traveling from place to place and from plantation to plantation. They had to have proper paperwork from their masters in order to go so that people wouldn't think that they were seeking to escape. And the slave patrol would be on hand whenever he or they would see slaves in a caravan or slaves with a horse and buggy. They would stop them and ask them for their papers or their identification. And sometimes even if a slave had the right identification, let's say a slave was free. There were free slaves during the time of slavery or, or free uh, Africans during that time. But there would be the slave patrol who would check the papers. And if they didn't feel good that day about this person they just encountered, they could still treat that person like a slave and put them back into slavery. So even when you were free, you didn't really have power. Even when you were free as a black man during that time, you could still be treated like you were still a slave. So the paperwork didn't really mean anything. So these slave patrols enforced curfews, checked for proper paperwork, and they caught those who assembled without permission. And they prevented any form of organized resistance. So that was the purpose of the slave patrol. And they would also use tactics within the enslaved community, a divide and conquer tactic to get the slaves fighting against one another, to get the slaves not trusting one another, to look for a slave who would work as an informant against the other slaves, to notify the slave patrol of gatherings that were taking place uh, in, the, in the brush here or down by the river over there. And so they would divide and conquer, look for informants. <laughs> Same thing still happens today. Beginning in 1704 in South Carolina, this kind of law enforcement was epitomized by white men patrolling, watching, catching, and beating enslaved Africans. Now, now watch this though, they, they would beat us. They would rarely kill us because we were seen as an asset and a commodity to be protected and not an asset that would turn into a liability through death. Now, now don't get it twisted, they would kill some of us, but the goal was to beat us up so bad and they would do it in public if there was an unruly slave or slave that had run away. They would take and make an example out of that slave so that the rest of the enslaved community would then be trapped by fear, immobilized by fear. Because if they did that to Kunta, they might just do that to me. You remember in the movie Roots, right? Kunta Kinte, uh, he, he didn't want to accept slavery. 
And so he constantly ran away. As a matter of fact, he never wanted to accept his slave name, Toby. But that's why they beat him in front of all the slaves to make him accept his American name of Toby and not his African name, Kunta Kinte. So there was a breaking process. And many times the slave patrollers would be brought in to do the breaking and the busting of the buck slaves. But Kunta Kinte not only uh, was beaten, but he ran away. And one time when he ran away as an older man, they caught him all right. They didn't kill him, but they chopped his foot off to keep him from running again and to make an example in front of all of the other slaves. Don't do what Kunta Kinte <clears throat> Toby did. So there was an intentional breaking, not only of the body and the spirit, but also of the mind and the soul. The slave patrols, the slave patrols. And when slavery officially ended, in 1865, with the passing of the 13th Amendment, the slave patrols turned into what would be known as the Black Codes. So now let's talk about the Black Codes. The Black Codes were restrictive laws designed and passed by white lawmakers in the South to limit the freedom of approximately 4 million Africans who had just been set free by uh, the 13th Amendment and to ensure their availability as a cheap labor force to the same slave masters and oftentimes on the same plantations they had just been freed from. So the Black Codes was put in place by white lawmakers to ensure the availability of newly freed Africans to rebuild the South after the Civil War and emancipation. And under the black codes, many Southern states required blacks to sign yearly contracts as sharecroppers. And if these newly freed Africans refused to sign, because we wouldn't become Americans until I believe the 14th or 15th amendment, uh, if they refused to sign, they would be fined, arrested, and forced into unpaid labor through the prison system. So what you see happening is the system is working, but it's not working for the newly freed Africans. It's working for the white people. So the system is against blacks, but it's for whites. And all these stipulations were put in place to keep black people oppressed. Not only that, the 13th Amendment open the door <clears throat> to a new kind of slavery because it says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So as the government abolished slavery, they created a new kind of slavery through the correctional system or through arrest. And so although slavery had been outlawed, now what just came in was saying it's OK to enslave them through punishment for a crime or duly convicting them. So now slavery or involuntary servitude is acceptable through the prison system. So in the South, great numbers of black men were picked up for quote unquote crimes, 
like not having a place to live. How can I find a place to live when I just got free from the plantation and I don't have a job? I'm trying to make ends meet. I've got my family. I'm trying to rejoice on one hand, but but make things happen on the other hand. And when the police come by who descended from the slave patrols and they ask me where I'm living and if I don't have a house to show them, the jail cell will now become my new house because they will arrest me under the charge of vagrancy or loitering. You see how the law was used? Not having documentation proving that you had a job could get you arrested. So if I don't have a job, I can get arrested. But here's the thing. But if I do get a job, I've got to sign a contract that says I'm going to work for you all year long as a sharecropper. And if for some reason the contract doesn't work in my favor or I want to get out of it, I can get arrested if I don't have documentation from you. Uh, matter of fact, they set rules in place that if good hearted white people wanted to pay black people a higher living wage, they could be arrested because the wage for blacks were set was set at a certain uh, premium. And so so again, the system was set up for us to fail. It was set up for us to be used by the system, to be put in jail, because what happened once we got put in jail? Convicts would be leased out to businesses. And so therefore, the government would make money from uh, uh, local business men and women who needed slave labor on their feet in their fields and on their old plantations. So they would lease them from the prison system and bring them to their home to do the work. So it was slavery all over again. And, 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 and blacks would be arrested and watch this. And they would be given certain charges and fines. And if they couldn't pay the charge or fine, once again, they would be locked up unless a white person came and paid the fine, paid the charge. Then that black person was now committed to be in servitude to the one who paid the fine. So the system was set up to, to trump up charges, put these fines on blacks that they could not pay. Whites would come and pay the fine and then have slaves all over again. And, and, and it was supposed to be that uh, uh, the, the servitude would last for a certain amount of time to which the slave or rather the freed black who's treated like a slave would then be freed. But somehow right around the time when there would be uh, uh, the end of the business transaction, uh, uh, the paperwork would get lost. And therefore, that black person would serve indefinitely because the paperwork was lost and the black person had no power to fight against such injustice that was built in to the system to benefit whites during that time. And so that stuff just doesn't go away. It continues to fester and manifest within the system. By the way, this system was called peonage. <clears throat> and it was when blacks became indebted to white creditors. That's peonage. Uh, southern states, as I mentioned, they, they leased their convicts to local industrial industrialists in a system known as convict leasing. 
And this is why, this is why, attorney Brian Stevenson, founder of the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama said, slavery did not end in 1865. It simply evolved. So slavery evolved into the prison system that went after blacks, black men in particular, and treated them as if they were still enslaved. So according to Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Color Blindness, there are more black men under correctional control today than were under slavery in 1850. So think about that. <clears throat> more black men under correctional control today, and that is either being in jail, in prison, on parole, probation, uh, 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 they have to check in with somebody or they're still bound by somebody. There's more under correctional control today than there were under slavery in 1850. Black Americans are incarcerated in state prisons at an average rate of 5.1 times of white Americans. And in some states, that rate is 10 times or more. And so although we may make up 12 to 13 percent of America's population, we make up well over 60% of America's prison population. It's not that we're committing more crimes, it's just that we're policed differently than other communities. And not far behind us is the Latino community because when the eyes of the police stay on us, other communities are able to do crimes and get away with it. And so when you police black people and you police black provinces and communities, you're going to come away with more quote unquote criminals. But also if you're trying to feed a system because of the prison industrial complex where they make money based on however many beds they have filled within these institutions. Therefore, there is a motivation on the police department to go out and bring back in not into God's house, but into the jailhouse because there's room there and there's money to be made. I can't even get into how uh, uh, prisoners today have debts that they must pay and, and how they work uh, uh, every day for pennies a day and how there are corporations who buy into the prison system because the prison system is not only operated by the state, but it's also operated by uh, uh, personal individuals, private uh, individuals who make money. And again, they lease services of prisoners to various corporations in the country to do menial labor. And so so this is corrupt in this one nation that's supposed to be under God. And so what happened then has bearings on the things that go on now. So as I conclude. I wanted us to see how the slave patrols led to over policing of black people in our day and age today. What happened then has bearings on what happens now and how officers or overseers could brutalize blacks and not face any kind of repercussions, how they were even authorized to kill blacks, even though that wasn't in the best financial interest of the institution of slavery, but definitely we saw blacks being killed without any recourse, 
during the time of the black codes because that also included the time of segregation and lynching and terror groups like the KKK being on the rise. And black bodies were hung up from trees and there was, would be many times no one ever brought to trial. And so again, that lingers into today where individuals, especially officers, can kill black people and not face any kind of recourse. But I hope and pray that day is changing because police officers, they may not have been held accountable then, but they ought to be held accountable now. We have more power to speak to the abuse of power today than my ancestors had back then. So we must use the power that we have in order to see that the wrong things made right today. You see, we are in a crazy time as I close this message. Oh boy, y'all, there, there's so much I could say. I can't say it all. Ah, but this year hit us with COVID-19. Um, it just changed everything up. This invisible virus has just changed the scope of how we live our lives. But more so, this virus has been fatal, killing over 130,000 people, and the numbers keep climbing in America who have succumbed to this virus. But we've not only had to deal with COVID-19 during 2020, we've also had to deal with COVID-1619 during 2020. What's 1619? That's the year that the first Africans arrived in Jamestown, Virginia, and from there, Slavery was birthed in America. And so we've been fighting both epidemics and, 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 and some people like to say that what's going on with institutional racism, it doesn't exist. It's not real. Matter of fact, it's a hoax. Just like some have said, the coronavirus is a hoax. But neither one of these maladies is a hoax. They both are very real and usually these viruses don't hit home until they hit your home and my home then you know that it's real or it hits the home of a loved one someone that you care about then you know you can't believe what the media says you then know that both diseases are real but to cure both viruses covid 19 and covid 16 19 we need god to intervene. Am I right about it? We need the Lord and we need people to step up. We need God, of course, and we need people to step up because God stands ready to do his part to relieve us of COVID-19 and COVID-16-19. But the question is, will we, will the church do our part? Will we work with him or against him? You see, the truth is without us, God will not. Without God, we cannot. But with God, we will faint not, nor grow weary in well-doing. We have the cure, at least for one of these viruses. We may not have the cure yet for COVID-19, but we do have the cure for COVID-16-19, and that cure is love. Love bears all things, 
believes all things, endures all things. Where there is sin abound, grace and God's love superabounds. Love, love, love. But we have not lived like we believe love, loving our neighbor. Because what does saying institution, institutional racism isn't real? How does that help love my neighbor? How does flying a Confederate flag love my neighbor? We have the cure, but will we use it? Will we love our neighbor, especially those who have been the victims of injustice? Now watch this. I preach about injustice. I preach about victimization. I am not a victim because I'm black, but because I'm black, I can easily become a victim. Why? Because the systems are still unjust. But what are we gonna do about it? Man, let's keep trying to apply the cure that the Lord has given us to love well. And a love that's not only in word, but a love that is in deed. Let's pray. Daddy, thank you for the word of God. Bless your people. Bless the hearer of the word. In Jesus' name, amen.